Hello everybody and welcome to episode 3 of season 2 of Sequelizer, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, you better believe we're going to try and fix it. I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular sequelizers. The team, always formerly known, but sort of currently known as the Street Sharks. Hey, there's no currently known. What, what are you on about? There's no yeah, currently there's known no, as the Street there's Sharks. There's no Street Shark link there is this no season. Shark, there's no Shark We abandoned the Sharks. I don't there's know no shark what game. you're talking about. God knows. No. I'm just delusional, clearly. Matt Dogden. Ni hao. And Tom Martin. I don't know any Chinese. <laughs> Funny enough, that's the only Chinese I know. Oh, this is gonna be I a know, good one. Actually, no, I uh, <laughs> actually know Bijouet. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I just I, the, the first one was for comedic effect. So there we go. And on the other side of things, the Plowman Ashen Experience, Mr. Alec Plowman. Hello. And Stuart Ashen. Hola. Well, this episode, as I kind of mentioned last time, this is possibly kind of a sequel to our Aladdin 2 episode. This is going from the first Disney straight-to-DVD movie to maybe the worst Disney straight-to-DVD sequel. Mulan 2 is the subject of today's discussion, mm, and holy shit. that film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it, it's pretty dreadful. Uh, it's quite amusing that whilst discussing uh, you know films that we were going to be doing with my Disney-loving partner, whom even actually uh, sort of had some things that she liked about Aladdin 2, she just said, oh no, that's, that's fucking shit. Um, it, it's a dreadful, dreadful film, which I believe is 0% fresh on Rotten it Tomatoes. It is officially 0% Ooh. on Rotten Tomatoes. It is the lowest rated film we've discussed so far. It's lower than Exorcist 2. It's lower than Aladdin 2. It's lower than anything else on Rotten Tomatoes. It's lower than a snake's belly. It's Mulan 2. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. It's also rated a 3.9 out of 10 average critical review as well. Mm. What, on IMDb? No, on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So, yeah... As I usually mention, we typically, most of our films are kind of like five point something. A 3.9 is a bad sign. And if anybody out there has seen Mulan 2, I'm sorry. If you saw it for this show, I feel really, really sorry. Because I struggled through Exorcist 2 and this, and I wish I hadn't. We have been debating if this is the worst sequel we've covered so far. I think you had Contenders in Exorcist 2, although I found... Exorcist 2, very amusing for all the I was laughing reasons. a lot, yeah. yeah. Bored, but um, laughing. Uh, that indi- famous comedic sequel, Exorcist 2. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ind- Independence Day Resurgence was just painful. Yeah. And this I'm, is yeah. I, rem- for... I remember you guys saying that was the most kind yeah. of brutal slog for you guys. Yeah, and this is, this is painful for an entirely different reason, uh, which I'm assuming you're going to come on to, host man. Host away! <laughs> <laughs> to the host-mobile! <laughs> <laughs> To kind of give it some context, this was released seven years after the original. The original, of course, in 1998. This came out in 2005. Disney decided for some reason that they c- carried on doing sequels. They'd already done, as I mentioned, Return of Jafar, the first kind of straight-to-DVD sequel, Pocahontas 2, Cinderella 2, Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, and plenty more. This is, in fact, the 20th of the straight-to-DVD Whoa! sequels produced in an 11-year period. And then, Whoa. after that, in 2007, they slowed down drastically. And well, was Lasseter when, taking over, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's Lasseter coming in. Exactly. I yes. think it's, it's interesting, because, of course, we talked about Aladdin being the first one, and this is well into the swing of production. In, in 1998, four straight-to-DVD sequels were released. They were doing three or four a year for, like, 96, 97, 98, and then they kind of slowed down. Only two a year... 
And yeah, this is the 20th one. And it is, yeah, like you said, right in the deep kind of dark pits it's of deep, hell at this it's point. It's a deep cut. Yeah. It's, it's a weird one because some of them get better. The 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 straight to DVD. Some of them, some of them aren't on. terrible. Yeah, <laughs> and they sort of they hit on a way to do it and make it not awful. For this one, they just fucked it spectacularly. It's weird because, okay, well, my wife and I um, have an opinion when it comes to Disney princesses or favorite inverted commas Disney princesses, especially considering Mulan is not actually a princess, oh, really? not officially, but she's my favorite female lead in Disney film, shall we say, um, until Moana becomes the sort of official, oh no, I can see what you're doing there, kind of thing. But uh, my wife always points out that Nala uh, in The Lion King is an underrated Disney princess because she's a lion and it's yeah. speciesist. Anyway, the point is that um, Mulan, really strong, really good film. I really like Mulan as a film. It's, I really enjoy that film a lot. But the sequel, as much as it makes a strange historical sense in a lot of the time, sort of, piece of shit. It's just horrific. And, and again, the, the whole contractual problems with um, Eddie Murphy because of Shrek 2 stuff going on. Um, so it's not Eddie Murphy back again. And much like the idea of Aladdin 2 with um, Robin Williams not coming back, n- noticeable difference. Oddly enough, Mosley, who does the voice for Eddie Murphy, did all of the like video game work for Shrek and Shrek 2. He is his voice double yeah. in the same way that like Tom Hanks' his brother is the Woody voice double yeah. and all that sort of stuff. He is consistently hired as voice doubles for loads and loads of people. But he just doesn't quite get it right in this one. I can't tell in some of the Shrek video games and stuff like that. I played them, you know, when I was a teenager on the PlayStation 1 and things like that. And funnily enough, I watched Shrek last night with my girlfriend, and I don't really know why. But I don't care for Shrek. No, I'm not, not a huge fan. Any of them. Fuck them all. First Fuck one's you. all right. I think the second one is absolutely awful. I can't understand why people like it. It's just like, hey, this is an animated fantasy land, but this character looks a bit like somebody in real life. That's funny. And then the third yeah, one is thanks, just the guys. same film again, just masquerading with a different hat on. I've never seen anything Beyond 2, because don't. Beyond 2 stuck in my craw. Do you like Justin Timberlake? No. Then don't... Get on board. Then watch our Inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> <laughs> His finest performance. Yeah, I would agree. Hey, no, he's very social, man. Uh, he's good in Southland Tales, and I'm going to keep sticking yeah, to Southland Tales. He's legitimately quite good. I like Southland Tales. On Time, In Time, that's quite reasonable. Uh, yeah, he's... Social Network? Was he in the Social Network? He's good network? in Social Network because yes, he plays yeah, a dick. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, he's really good in that. So let me give some, basically, a plot synopsis for the people who made the right decision who have never seen Mulan 2. Well done, you. Yeah, congratulations on that, because we made that mistake. This is the sacrifice we make for our art. We watch shit films, so you don't have to. Exactly. That maybe swap the subtitles. (laughs) So, Mulan 2, direct-to-video sequel to the Disney hit Mulan, because the first one was a big hit, begins with the title character becoming engaged to General Shang. Before they can begin the life of wedded bliss, they must escort a trio of princesses to weddings of their own in order to facilitate a peace between warring nations. Mulan begins to believe her mission may be less than noble upon discovering that the women are being forced into arranged marriages against their will. Mulan then ends up on opposing sides against her beloved General Shang in order to fight for what is right. To party! I tell you what would be a horrible podcast to have to do. Watching all, (laughs) we know that one. Watching all the direct to home release DVD sequels. I'm sure there's lots of Disney Disney. podcasts, and they've season 55, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my! Hello, kids. Welcome to Sequelizers. Because I've watched two, and frankly, they were both fucking awful. 
I've seen a few more. I've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame too. I've seen yeah. Mermaid Pocahontas too. Seen. Lion King too. Pocahontas too. Lion King too. I think is one of the best ones, and I mean, it's, it's crap. relative. Like, <laughs> yeah. Is there a Fox and the Hound prequel or something? There bizarre? is. Yep. There yes. is. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So, lady yeah. and the Tramp the lady Three. The tramp. Skullfuckers yeah. Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does, does the pastor try and kill? Is that Mad him? Max crossover <laughs> we'd all been waiting for? <laughs> lady and the Tramp Fury Road. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. The, the, the fuel lines the meet and they explode. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the late the lady shaved and then she's got a robot dog paw and like and they're yeah. chugging gasoline on either end of the thing. And, yep. <laughs> and they meet in the middle. So yeah, why does Milan too need sequelizing, gentlemen? Because it's an offence to man and mostly women. women. Oh, <laughs> that's uh, it's that's really, a good point. Really, really. Because the synopsis I just read kind of sounds like yeah, fight the power. Fuck arranged marriages. We're going to help break these women out of these oppressive regimes and stuff. No. It kind of undoes all the strong female characterization of the first one, which is kind of what defines the first one because it's so about her gender identity in that society. I think it's interesting because you said that the synopsis from the way you read it, it's like, oh, there's a way they could do something with this and make this interesting. And then they don't. It's also interesting the synopsis leaves out the Mushu story about him saying, oh, I want to be the Guardian still, therefore I'm going to break them up. It's like, what? Why? Completely what? changing his entire character arc and motivation, making him to a real dick as well. I think, I'm pretty sure everyone nearly dies in a wagon crash because yeah. of him. Yeah, because yeah, of Mushu. He, yeah, he, he nearly pushed him over the thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. wow, this got... Uh, well, it was shit, but it got dark and shit. It's weird. It's like he's the actual villain, if you look at the plot. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really it is, yeah. Well, it doesn't really have a, a proper villain, does it? Just no conflict yeah. between her and the patriarch. Like, yeah. yeah, understandably. Also, it's one of those. Okay, it's a frustrating thing of setting something in a different time zone. You can do a lot of things. It is fantasy. You can change a lot of things up. I mean, we did that with our respective Aladdin pitches, but and who knows? Maybe we'll do the same with the Mulan. Who even knows? But what I'm saying is that you, you can't just say, "Oh, okay, how do we get around this um, age-old tradition that has gone on for centuries?" of marrying off daughters and sons to form peace in arranged marriages. I'm not saying you don't have to... You can't fix it because it's arguably invoked as you know sort of pseudo-history, but then you think, well, just don't fucking address it then. Why are you sort of trying to fix it but not actually fixing anything at all? I mean, if you're, if you're going to make an actual statement, do something with it rather than present a non... Um, a non-resolve because it literally is a case of, oh, I don't want to go on with this re- arranged marriage. I feel that's a terrible thing. Three men who happen to be here, though... Ding. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, these three will do it. It's, it's such the a weird thing. The first three men they've ever met. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's like, yeah. we have high principles, but we're very lazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who is in the room with us? Ah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a ropey film. And again, I, the problem is, any, any way we describe it, people will still think, yeah, but it sounds all right. It's and not. that's the danger. It's really not. Yeah, the, the reason I chose that synopsis out of the options that were there was like, it sounds reasonable. It sounds... Yeah. Like not a retread of the first one. It sounds like sounds a, interesting. It, it sounds moves quite the story on. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like a genuine progression of Mulan's story, but it ends up being a retread of the first one, and it's a bunch of shit. But also visually it removes shite. a lot of her agency as a female. Yeah, character. exactly, exactly. If anything, it dials everything back, and she's just back to being this kind of non-character. She's, she's barely got a even bit there. of a Padme arc. She yeah, starts oh, off Christ, sort of very yeah. strong, Perfect. and then. Perfect comparison there, yeah, exactly. And she just becomes defined by her relationship to Shang. That's that's yeah. basically it's well, like the will they won't they kind of thing, as we've said with Mushu. It just yeah, on paper though, it's, it's so strange because again, it, the plot as Jack described it, you could make it work quite well. It's a, it's a solid follow up to a really really good film, etc. etc. And the cast is a lot of Asian. I, I haven't always an issue with it's like oh, 
Set in China, eh? Get me some Japanese people. But um, <laughs> but it's the idea of he's Korean. He'll do. As <laughs> yeah, well. oh, God. yeah. It's it's a memoirs of a geisha. It's like this is this is going to go down badly. But at the same time, it's like no, you've you've made an effort. You have a large, diverse, multi, uh, sorry, mostly Asian cast. That's really well done. And then they're in this god awful film. It's like oh, this is such a terrible step backwards. I think there are like two two sequels afterwards that were being planned that, as we mentioned earlier, Lasseter just ditched immediately. Said, no, we're not doing Thank it. God for John Lasseter. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. I kind of hinted at it earlier that there are no good songs in this. Nope. I thought, you know, there are a couple that kind of work in Aladdin 2 and I'm, I'll Make a Man Out of You is like one of my all-time favourite Disney songs. Yeah. Which blew my mind when I found out it was Donny Osmond singing that. Oh, yeah. I fucking love that song. In even the Dragon Ball Z parody version of it. <laughs> I've heard that. And this has no memorable... I couldn't hum a line from no. any of the songs. Well, to be fair, we're talking, this was like 2000... eight of them. There's quite a lot of songs as well. And a lot of reprises and stuff like that. It just it just doesn't flow for me no. at all. So it, it came out in 2005. And, and the thing with Disney at the time, they stepped away from, we need uh, like five to ten mu- musical numbers in this, where they went from, oh... Aladdin has a great sound and feel to it, and to Hunchbacks, I have too many fucking songs in this film. Um, so they decided, we'll go with one song. Like, again, Mulan's a great example, because it does both, and it has a few things there going on. They've got Christina Aguilera doing her song at the end. And then you get to things like Brother Bear in the later releases, and they got and Tarzan, for example. Songs start getting faded out, yeah. because the people say, eh, it's kind of hokey, it's kind of last century, give me something else. Again, uh, as much as I fucking hate Emperor's New Groove. I don't remember any songs in that. Really? Yeah, I quite like Emperor's New Groove. You can all How fuck off. Dare you. Is it because you look like an alpaca slash... <laughs> <laughs> My people... <laughs> have no comment. Um, no, 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 I, I fucking hate that film. We'll not go to that now, but that's, that's for, so for later. Nice, nice, nice. But um, effectively speaking, it's the idea that Disney started fading out, well, phasing out, at that stage, at least, releasing you know multiple songs, it was still happening every now and again. But in in the in the d- uh, director video sequels, they're still trying to do it. But again, there's no effort to it. It's such a lazy hand. No effort. Thing. There's no budget. There's no like br- bringing people on like Donny Osmond and stuff like that. That kind of you get these iconic performances from either singers who get their breakthrough through this, or you bring on people like Aguilera or Osmond, these established kind of pop stars, and and they bring to the table their skills and it all works very well and you have the budget for that and then the directory dvd sequels are just like oh we'll just get the budget actors to sing it i guess yeah it's it's such made for tv shit that that brings up an interesting point as well they must have to um i don't know whether you can confirm or deny this jack because you've done the research but they must have basically churn them out like in a factory style i assume so yeah because because if they're they're making even if these are these are not the scraping feature length. I mean, to have produced three of these in a year and... Well, they were often done by the people that were doing the TV series as yes. well. Yes, most of them are basically spin-offs of the There's a Lion King TV yes. show and then there's the Timon and Pumbaa show, which is then Lion King 3 is basically the Timon and Pumbaa movie and it's all just, yeah, they're basically versions and the teams and the composers from the TV show is brought over. And yeah, they pretty much just churn it out. Like I said, they do three or four a year for like four or five years in a row. And, Unless we travel yeah. to the future and someone says, Marvel films, three in a year, Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
Because uh, Disney just make money and think this exactly, is going to make more. Yeah, Disney just run things into the ground, but it hasn't happened with Marvel. Marvel yet. No, Star Wars has been good so far. Ugh. Hopefully, it won't happen with Star Wars. Yeah. Mm. And Solo, Solo movie coming soon. Yeah. As dismal as Return of Jafar was, this is like several rungs lower on the ladder of quality. It really is. Absolutely, yeah. Return of Jafar has some redeemable qualities, and I can remember some of the songs. I can sort of hum a couple of lines here and there. Fucking nothing from Mulan 2 stuck in my brain. And I, we said it, it's 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Return of Jafar is like 28 or 30-something, and that's a big difference. That makes a huge difference. Like Return of Jafar, we talked about it, is one of the worst films we did in season one, and this is worse. I mean, Alex said at the time... Like he preferred to watch Exorcist too because you can at least enjoy it in a kind of weird, yeah, funny, ironic. It is, this is so yeah. mental. It kind of is entertaining. Whereas Return of Jafar is just boring and bland, and this takes this, as you said, Stuart, like ten steps further, and is just the blandest, most boring thing. It's like we come back for a season three. So, oh, we got to throw in like a animated or a Disney film to to. Uh, add that sort of uh, element to the little oeuvre we've got going on, and then not really because we cover the worst one. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Straight in for the it, worst. Yeah. yeah, from first to worst, and I think we've basically covered the span of the director DVD sequels until season fifty-five, when we'll be scraping the barrel. Oh, yes, until that's until season entirely. I'm quietly convinced they'll never stop making shit sequels. <laughs> Unless they, they start listening. have stopped, though, is the weird thing. There's oh, no, not Disney. Like... I meant anybody. Oh, Sorry. Oh, okay. We'll start. Yeah, well, there'll always yeah. be fodder for us to, to, yeah. to re- correct. Can I also mention, I'd totally forgotten Brother Bear existed until you just mentioned it. So does Brother Bear 2. No, yep. don't tell me it was a straight... T- yeah. Yep. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the more recent ones that came out after this. Is it pretty bad, I'm assuming? It's terrible. Stop I don't shit. like the original. But yeah. Yeah, I've, the original never, I've, dumb, also, I've but... never seen the original. I'd, yeah. I'd literally forgotten its existence. Yeah. I've only seen bits. <laughs> I didn't like it. My girlfriend, maybe she's a hardcore Disney fan as well, and she was just like, oh, it's the only one you haven't seen. She's got the full collection. And she was like, you've got to see it. And I'm like... And now I have. I ended up just like being on Twitter halfway through. I turned my PS4 on the halfway through. Fuck it, I don't care. So yeah, because the thing about Disney is there's so many bits and pieces that people forget exist about you know, and not because they're bad necessarily, but because like, hey, do you remember the Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad's films? Like, no, uh, in the sense that I remember it, but you mentioning it two minutes ago. But it's like, and you remember the Three Caballeros? I always bring up the Three Caballeros because I like that film. I like the idea of what it was supposed to be: unity, America. No, it's, it's they're not awful, but just forgettable and not not really as iconic as Pinocchio and fucking Alice in Wonderland and shit like that. Um, but then you get King Basil, the Great Mouse Detective. See, but again, that's good. I like yeah. that film, and a yet lot. that's completely glossed over, isn't it? Cauldron, and, Black Cauldron's gone. Oliver and Company was that Oliver and Company? I, yeah, I've never seen that, so I yeah, can't see Oliver Cauldron and Company too as well. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness! Did anybody watch the first one? Ah, uh, I did. Must, and you did. Enough of them must No, I've not seen <laughs> Oh, shit, and this is me then. Yeah. Just me and Matt. made that sequel just for you, and you didn't watch it. Well, fuck them. So, on to team names, and over to the Plowman Ashen experience, a.k.a. Peter Frampton's buddies. We should be known as the Fret... No. <laughs> we should be known as Guai Lo, which mm. is a little uh, little treat for it's any Chinese, Chinese speakers. Chinese for Peter Frampton. That is correct. <laughs> Possibly. Depends how much you like uh, Peter Ramden. That. And over to the guys who are totally not Street Sharks. Uh, no, I'm sorry. There's no Street Shark in this season. Thank I said you. you weren't. We're, yeah. Yeah, we know. We're yeah. just confirming totally, it. Totally just confirming not. it. Carry on. Tom, what, what do we call this season? Uh, this episode. This episode we are called uh, Year of the Land Shark. It's a different thing. <sighs> I hope you two die soon. <laughs>
This is just bullshit. I'm sorry, but Jesus Christ. It's like growing legs if you were born for the water. It'd be painful, but hilarious. Fuck me. I hate you guys so much. I mean, this is having the desired effect, so we're really happy. Yep. Just you wait until some of the later episodes. Oh, we got, got so some, much planned. We got so much planned for you. Anyway. I'll come to you first then, Year of the Land Shark, which is totally not a street shark. It's an entirely separate entity. Different. It's it's culturally... Culturally diverse offensive. and offensive, yeah. <laughs> That's the main <laughs> thing. <laughs> You're not wrong. No. Yeah. So I'd like title and elevator pitch, please, sirs. Our film is called Mulan 2, Heroes and Monsters. Following the death of her father, Mulan must defend her people once more as the mythical Jade Emperor appears, unleashing a magical army to enslave all of China. Before anyone uh, gets concerned, anyone who knows actual Chinese history and mythology, uh, we are much like the gender swapping. We are turning a lot of uh, preconceptions about heroes and monsters on their heads. Oh, we don't usually do themes like you guys, the but people were monsters all along. Kind of people are the biggest monsters. And if people were monsters, they'd have, like, legs of people, faces of monsters, maybe some sort of, like, <laughs> animal-based monsters. Maybe there would be some sort of, like, aquatic Yeah, who knows, who knows? We'll let you imagine on the land. If you want to draw those crazy creatures and send them to us, don't. <laughs> okay, over to Guaylo. Right. Uh, our film is titled Mulan 2. That's it. 2004, ours is coming out, so the year before, there's a a reason for that. Um, Our elevator pitch goes as follows. As China faces a grave crisis, the Emperor tasks Mulan with a mission of utmost importance. But with the task requiring Mulan to compromise her own principles, will she be able to see it through? Back to Year of the Land Shark. Hit me with some cast some directors, all that good stuff. Okay, so we're setting this in 2002, four years after Mulan. The director is uh, returning Barry Cook and Tony Bancroft from the original. Uh, returning cast, we've got Ming-Na Wen playing Li Mulan. Uh, notice I didn't say Fa Mulan. Or Hua Mulan, I'm pretty sure, but uh, it's in Mandarin rather than Cantonese. But I'm not a linguistic expert, so I'm just going to say Li Mulan for there is a development within the story. Uh, Eddie Murphy will be playing his role of Mushu because uh, we don't have the problem with the legal dispute with um, Shrek 2 at this point. because Shrek 2 got shit-canned in our universe. Who fucking knew? Uh, BD Wong comes back with Li Shang and uh, Sun Tech Oh as Fa Zhao, uh, which is uh, Mulan's dad. Pat Morita comes back as the Emperor of China. I think he's just the unnamed Emperor of China. So he's we'll just t- the Emperor in the original. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will get confusing later because our new cast is Chow Yun Fat as the Jade Emperor. Um, at this point, he's done Hard Boiled and he's just done Crash and Tiger Hidden Dragon. So people will be more familiar who is in from Western side of things. Uh, we've got Gong Li playing General Sung Kumiko. I mean, she was in Raise the Red Lantern, the Emperor and the Assassin. She goes on to do some amazing films in 2046 and Memoirs of I, I really like um, Gong Li. She's really cool. Uh, we've got Joan Chen as Jing Liu. Um, she was in The Last Emperor and she goes on to be in Lust Caution. Wait for it. In the role of Gong Gong from recently starring in High Fidelity before going on to be in School of Rock and Kung Fu Panda, Jack Black. DOP, arguably irrelevant, and composer Jerry motherfucking Goldsmith, because he's still alive, and I fucking love Jerry You've Goldsmith. You've mentioned Goldsmith a few times before, haven't you? There's a reason. Tom has his uh, Fincher Deacon's love. Do love me some Jerry Goldsmith. That is all. Back over to Guaylo for the same details, please. The director of Mulan 2 will be Brad Bird. 
Oh, Ooh, very nice. Very nicely done. Bringing a slightly more, I won't say adult, but a slightly uh, more erotic. PG thought to it, and heavily erotic. <laughs> okay, returning cast, Ming-Na Wen as Mulan. Uh, singing voice, of course, provided by Leah Salonga. Eddie Murphy as Mushu, because that recasting didn't work. B.D. Wong as Captain Lee Shang, singing voice provided by Donny Osmond. That does blow your mind when you realize it. really it. does, doesn't it, yeah. <laughs> June Foray as Grandmother Far, singing voice provided by Marley Nixon. Harvey Fierstein as Yao. Geddy Watanabe as Ling. Jerry Tondo as Chienpo. And, of course, Pat Morita as Emperor Palpatine of China. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. It's just the Emperor. And new cast, Lucy Liu as the Bandit Queen. Oh, mm. okay. And Mulan's new haircut, based on a design by Peter Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, based on a dream dream, dreamt by Peter Frampton. I tell you what, I nearly put that. (laughs) Based on melodies originally hummed by by Peter Frampton. I didn't know how you were going to get Frampton in there. I was not expecting hairdresser Frampton to crop up. (laughs) Oh, crop up! You're welcome. Fucking eight puns. Our themes are tradition versus modernity, idealism versus pragmatism, and personal redemption. Are you ready for your full pitch? Oh, yeah, gentlemen? shit, fuck, we're ready. Over to you, Mr. Matthew Stogden. The film immediately opens on a small village in chaos. The evening is illuminated clearly as fire consumes houses and the citizens run in panic as silhouetted armed sol- soldiers march through. One young man charges into a stable and hides among the spooked horses. The doors fling open behind him, a long shadow cast on the ground. He peers through a crack in the wooden planks and watches the footfalls of the heavily armoured soldier. A warhammer cleaves the planks in half, revealing the cowering young man. Stood over him is General Sung Kumiko. She looks down with contempt at the man before hoisting him up by his shirt. Menacingly, she tells him to get on a horse and ride for the nearest city, and to let them know that the Jade Emperor has returned. The man does as instructed, not looking back at the flaming wreckage that he used to call home. We cross-dissolve to several people in a long procession, all dressed in white, walking away from the village and up the hill. A large, ornate box is being carried along with small boats filled with flowers. At the head of the procession is Li Mulan and her husband Li Shang. The priest offers words of comfort as we learn that this is a funeral procession for Mulan's father, Fa Zhao. After the eulogy, Mulan steps forward and holds a torch to the tinderbox, causing the entire offering to catch fire. As smoke rises high into the night sky, Mushu can be seen watching from a distance, his head held low. That night, Mulan is lying asleep but clearly unsettled, dreaming heavily. In her dream, Mulan sees herself in traditional Chinese makeup and dress, and a second version in full military attire. The two versions of herself dance in the fog, but she has difficulty focusing. Stepping out of the fog is a man holding a lantern. It is her father. Running to meet her recently deceased parent, Mulan embraces Fa Zhao, and he assures her that he is in a better place with his ancestors, all of whom are proud of the lineage she continues to uphold. Shifting tone, Zhao informs his daughter that his visit is not just a reunion. He has come with a message and a mission from their ancestors. He goes on to explain this will be a greater challenge than any she has ever faced. The Jade Emperor of myth and legend has returned to China to rule the land. Mulan is confused as her folk stories always spoke of the Jade Emperor as a benevolent sovereign deity. Zhao states this may have been the case, but no longer, and she must stop him at all cost. To aid her, she will be sent assistance from the other side. Mulan wakes, startling her husband. She details her dream to him, and despite being unsure of what to think, trusts his wife, asking what to do next. Mulan confesses she doesn't know. General Sung walks through a large throne room before bowing at a glowing green altar. 
An unseen voice hisses for a progress report. Sung merely holds out a vase. A gnarled hand from an off-screen figure reaches for the vessel and brings it closer. As the old man looks inside, he tilts it upside down, entering the contents into his mouth. A whirlwind of smoke fills the room before an explosion of light reveals a powerful, younger man in ornate dress stood before the still-kneeling general. She looks up and smiles at her master, who exuberantly celebrates his restored vitality. Marching down the expansive, gilded room, the Emperor informs General Sung of his plan, how mankind have forgotten the old ways, and that it is time they remembered who they truly serve. Sung walks steadily behind him, saying the army is ready. At this point, the Emperor opens a set of doors, revealing a breathtaking terracotta army, who immediately call out in one voice to their leader. The Emperor gives a speech to his troops, who raise their swords and spears aloft, chanting in support. The Emperor smiles. The next day, Mulan is saddling her horse, Khan, while her husband protests that without a solid plan, she will be wandering into danger. Mulan assures Shang that she won't be alone, and her wits have served her well in the past. Shang mutters, don't I know it. Mulan kisses her husband before mounting her horse and telling Shang to petition the Emperor. As she rides away, Shang sighs, tell the Emperor a ghost army led by a myth is coming. Yeah, that'll go down well. Entering a forest, Khan comes to a halt, cautiously scanning the thicket. Mulan attempts to stabilise the horse, but a deep sound scares both of them. Mushu steps proudly out of the bamboo forest. Mulan is pleased to see her old friend as she explains his reward for helping her the last time was an increase in power and status. Most notably, he has grown an inch in height. Mulan and Khan share a look before she humours the tiny red dragon. Mulan begins talking about the Jade Emperor and that Mushu was sent by her ancestors to help. Mushu is very puzzled and admits he hasn't been told everything. This leads him to a rant about being a bona fide family guardian and he should be the first to know about any new mission. Following the mini-tantrum, the three characters proceed on their journey discussing how best to combat someone of such extreme power. We are then treated to a journey montage while a song plays over the top. The song is called Journey On, performed by Phil Collins. Journey On! <laughs> Better than his work on Tarzan! <laughs> we distilled the essence of uh, Phil Collins there. In a mysterious realm, a circle of elders stand around a silhouetted figure. The elders chastise the figure, addressing it as Gong Gong for all of his disastrous actions. To atone, he must assist the Far family. A portal opens up before the creature, which we can now see is a red-haired, dragon-like sea beast who roars and is sucked through the portal. Mulan, Mushu and Khan are walking past the lake as it starts to froth and bubble. Mulan readies her sword while Mushu adopts a combative stance. Out of the lake, the giant flailing sea creature roars. Everyone present are taken aback and Mushu quips, I really hope that's not the Jade Emperor. The beast crashes to the shore and crawls further inland. As it does, it shifts and morphs into a rotund human form whilst retaining his red hair. Coughing and spluttering, the newly formed man stands up and looks around. Spotting Mulan and Mushu, he runs over to them and enthusiastically introduces himself as Gong Gong. Both Mulan and Mushu recognise the name and caring a little confirm his various titles and aliases as a great demon who wrought floods on the land to which he nods and says, uh-huh, with somewhat unfitting levity. Mulan holds her sword out and challenges the creature. Gong Gong, slightly offended, explains humans have got him all wrong. Through a musical number with a scroll-like animated sequence, we learn that Gong Gong challenged the great fire dragon Zhu Rong to a fight for the throne of heaven. Losing the battle, Gong Gong smacked his head against the Buju Mountain, which happened to be the pillar that holds up the sky, causing the sky to shift and prompted great floods. The goddess Nuwa repaired the pillar, but couldn't fix the tilted axis. Out of the flashback, Gong Gong explains it was all just a big accident that got out of hand, and he's really not a bad guy. Mulan sheathes her sword, but Mushu still doesn't trust him. Excitedly exclaiming that being a man will be fun, Gong Gong bounds off ahead. The others slowly follow. 
In the Imperial Palace, the Emperor of China and Shang discuss the pending attack. While it seems fantastical, they can't find another explanation for the reports of attacks that are coming in. The Emperor places Shang in charge of the army and commands him to travel to the outskirts of the city and form a perimeter protecting the civilians. Shang agrees and departs. Back on the road, Gong Gong details that he has been sent by the elders to help Mulan on her quest and will not fail her. While saying this, he walks into a tree, causing Mulan to whisper that she's not sure how much help he'll be. Mushu agrees. Gong Gong freezes before clumsily diving for cover, the others slowly follow. From the underbrush, they peer out at a woman who is washing clothes in the stream. Mulan doesn't see a problem, but Gong Gong is clearly furious. Striding over, he brazenly calls out to the woman for following him. Mulan tries to calm Gong Gong down, but he persists and continues to berate the woman. A comical scene ensues, where every time Mushu and Mulan look away, the woman reveals an extra head before hiding it. Gong Gong becomes exasperated by the near misses, but Khan finally witnesses the nine-headed snake monster and alerts the others of her true form. Zhang Liu sighs and introduces herself. Mushu and Mulan recognise the name as yet another demon of legend. Gong Gong is hurt by this and says she may not be the best person, but she's no demon. He then turns to the snake creature who has taken simple human form and shouts at her for goading him to fight Zhurong before telling her to go home. Mulan intervenes and says they could possibly use all the help they can get and shakes Zhang Liu's hand. Zhang Liu thanks her new friend, her forked tongue flicking and eyes briefly glowing, which causes Mulan to recoil a little, much to the amusement of the snake-like being. Lining up the armed warriors of the nation, General Shang gives a speech and scans the horizon. Everything goes still as the terracotta army approaches on the horizon, the marching opposing force greatly outnumbering Shang's army. All the same, he cries out to his men and charges into battle. A bitter, hard-fought battle ensues, with soldiers carving through the pottery men, but the fight is difficult. At the rear of the skirmish, Shang sees a human atop a mighty horse, General Sung. Gritting his teeth, he fights through the army and towards the commander. Approaching a military encampment with a lavish central tent, Zhang Liu and Gong Gong argue about directions. Specifically, they were going the wrong way until Zhang Liu turned up. Mulan silences the bickering and observes the camp. Noting the minimal security, she says they could quite easily sneak inside. We then cut to the group clumsily painted in clay to look like terracotta warriors. They awkwardly stumble through the camp before Gong Gong messes up and triggers the guards into action. A fight ensues with each member performing admirably. The fight, however, comes to an abrupt stop when the Jade Emperor exits his tent. Taken aback by the impressive being, Mulan stands up to him and announces he must leave the realm. The Emperor explains he does not talk to mortals, especially female ones. Miming rolling up sleeves, Mushu storms forward and demands a piece of the Emperor. Suddenly recognising the two disguised creatures, the Emperor mocks Gong Gong and Zhang Lu for being the laughingstock of the mystical realm. Mulan defends them, stating appearances aren't what they seem, that demons can be heroes and legends can be monsters. Insulted, the Emperor produces a jade sword and fights Mulan, while the others hold off the terracotta warriors. Back on the battlefield, the army is overwhelmed by the terracotta soldiers, who are close to breaching the city walls. Shang has made his way to General Sung, and both are fighting ferociously. As Mulan and the Jade Emperor clash, he spitefully mocks her for underperforming, but Mulan comments that if that were the case, the battle would be over. Gong Gong, still bickering with Zhang Lu, states that she shouldn't be here, that it's not her fight. Zhang Lu protests and says he always does this, but distracted by the argument, takes an arrow to the shoulder. Seeing this, Gong Gong is crippled with fear and worry before Mushu slaps him about and tells him to fight. Gong Gong suddenly says he'll only screw up. Mushu chastises him for not trying, saying Mulan fights better than any man and he can fight better than any fire dragon if he believes in himself and is doing it for the right reasons. Hearing these words and seeing Zhang Lu struggling, Gong Gong dramatically returns to his true form and sprays fierce jets of magical water which cause the clay guards to melt and become bogged down in their own movements. 
Having taken care of the majority of the attackers, Gong Gong reverts to his portly human form and comforts the impressed Zhang Lu, who starts to apologise, but is interrupted by Gong Gong, who says she has nothing to apologise for. Mulan and the Emperor are so consumed in their battle that the fact that they are the only two still fighting isn't noticed at all. The Emperor says Mulan and her exploits will be a forgotten footnote in history, whereas his empire will live on for eternity. Feeling her strength increasing, Mulan's sword begins to glow with a purple shimmer. Mulan corrects the Emperor, saying her family is her history, past, present and future. He fights alone. She fights with all her ancestors as one. With this, she brings the sword down, shattering the jade blade. The Emperor, defeated, is reduced to a withered state, but before he can perform one last attack, Zhang Liu produces a snake-like tail and flicks him high into the sky, through the clouds. Gong Gong comments that his landing on the Jade Mountain is going to be a nasty one. Sure enough, we cut to the throne room from earlier, and the Jade Emperor crashes through the door and slams into the throne, causing the mighty chair to fall backward. From behind the debris, we hear the Emperor moan, Ah, my hip! General Shang watches as the terracotta army crumbles and topples before him as a swirling vortex opens and summons General Sung through, despite her struggling and vowing vengeance on those she believes to be traitors. A moment of stillness passes over the tired, dumbfounded warriors before a mighty celebration rings out, with cheers and hugs everywhere. We cross resolve to another procession, this one in honour of the valiant work of Mulan and General Shang. The entire city cheer enthusiastically as fireworks light up the night sky. The Emperor presents a special sword to each of the warriors and thanks them on behalf of all the people of China. He then turns to Mulan and once again petitions her to join him as an advisor. Her husband looks to her and raises his eyebrows. Mulan then turns and sees two familiar faces in the crowd, who also listen eagerly. I don't think I meant we mention it, but that's Zhang Lu and Gong Gong in human form. But yeah, yeah. Good, good, you're following, it's good. After a small speech, Mulan graciously accepts a position on the proviso that she gets to pick her staff. The Emperor agrees, smiling. Mushi breathes fire, igniting several large rockets which propel into the sky, exploding triumphantly, and the celebration continues long into the night. A rendition of the song Journey On, this time performed by Christina Aguilera, returning from Mulan, plays over the credit sequence. Yeah, bringing back Aguilera. Well, oh, yeah. her career was kind of jet launched by Mulan. She she didn't get. I don't think. I think she had a presence until she sang that song. And they're like, oh, we should give her an album. Don't think I didn't notice that Jack Black plays a street shark. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. A it's a snake, demon, dragon. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Full of references. <laughs> the meta text is strong. Over to Guaylo this time for your pitch, gentlemen. Why, thank you. Some years after the war with the Huns, and Far Mulan has returned to life with her family in rural China. She has turned her back on a military life, embracing a simpler existence as a farmer. As she harvests the fields, she sings the song "A Simpler Life." which details her contentment and appreciation of the little things. The second verse of the song, sung by Grandmother Far, reveals that Mulan's relationship with Shang has long ended, much to her disappointment. Shang was a career-driven military man, and his devotion to his career, as well as desire for big city living, proved incompatible with Mulan's simple life aspirations, driving a wedge between the couple. Grandmother Far expresses conflicted emotions during the song. On one hand, she is disappointed that there is no union, but on the other, she does admire Mulan's independence and how she sticks to her principles. China still rebuilds after the devastating war with Shat and Yu, and there is a sense of returning stability during peacetime. But fears of a new threat are spreading across China. When Mulan returns to the family home for dinner, conversation turns to fears of a conflict between China and Mongolia. The family expresses concerns about a return to the conflicts of old and a tense silence falls on the room. However, Mushu, who boisterously retells the events of the first film in song form, The Warrior Woman, 
breaks up this tension. He reminds the family that Mulan is China's great protector, that she defeated Shan Yu, and that so long as she and her faithful spirit guardian dragon are around, nothing bad is going to happen. The next morning, Mulan wakes to discover a crowd has gathered in the village square. Unexpectedly, a military unit has arrived. She makes her way through the crowd to discover that Shang leads them, marking the first time he has returned to the village since the breakup. The two awkwardly reunite. Shang brings with him a summons from the Emperor, calling for Mulan to attend a meeting in the Imperial City. Mulan questions Shang on the nature of the meeting. He will not tell her the specifics, but states that it is a matter of grave importance for the future of China, and that time is of the essence. Mulan does not want to leave her family, but a summons from the Emperor means she has little choice. Saying a teary goodbye, she reluctantly leaves with Mushu in tow. On the journey to the Imperial capital, Mulan and Shang talk about their relationship and why it fell apart. It is clear that the two remain friends, though they are very different people. Shang's career drive and his inability to talk about his feelings clashed with Mulan's strong principles and her desire for a rural life. Arriving at the Imperial City, Shang and Mulan meet with the Emperor. He briefs Mulan on the situation. The Emperor says that China has not recovered from the devastation of the conflict with Shan Yu several years ago. The country's armies are depleted along with its finances and resources. The Emperor says that the solution is for China to form an alliance with the neighbouring Qigong Kingdom. The Qigong are rich in resources. The might of their highly disciplined army is the stuff of legend. Working with them, China will be strong enough to secure peace for the country. Shang continues that the way to solidify that alliance is to forge a stable union between China and the Qigong. The emperor has therefore arranged for his daughter, Mai, to be married to the son of Lord Qin, the ruler of the Qigong kingdom. But time is of the essence. The emperor's daughter therefore needs to be delivered to Lord Qin as quickly as possible so the alliance can be formalised. The quickest route to the Qigong, Shang says, is via the treacherous bandit trail, one of the most dangerous roads in all of China. A 30-mile stretch where criminals and ne'er-do-wells await at every turn, it is hardly the place for the emperor's daughter to be, but desperate times call for desperate measures. This, the emperor reveals, is why Mulan has been summoned. She and Shang, along with Ling, Chen Po and Yao, her army friends from the first film, will guard Mai on her journey, disguised as merchants to avoid drawing unnecessary attention to their convoy. Mulan does not like the plan that the Emperor proposes. She notes that Lord Qin's son has a reputation as a brute, and that the Emperor is effectively selling Mai into slavery for the alliance. Shang is shocked by Mulan's defiance of the Emperor, but the Emperor says he respects her opinion and allows her to speak. He responds that he does not make this decision lightly. Ultimately, he says, while he is a father, he is also the Emperor of China, and his responsibility to China must come first. Outside of the meeting, strong words are exchanged between Mulan and Shang. Shang states that the fate of China rests on their shoulders and that now is not the time for Mulan's moral dilemma about Mai. Mulan retorts that there was likely no discussion of an alternative arrangement and that the emperor is treating his daughter as if she was a goose rather than a girl. She tells Shang that she understands the importance of this mission but cannot in good conscience be a part of it. Shang is initially angry but accepts Mulan's decision. He says that they must leave imminently, and bids her farewell. She responds that it was good to see him again, and hopes that the next time they meet will be under better circumstances. Shang, Ling, Chenpo and Yao ride out along the bandit trail along with Mai, but, a half day into their travel, they are ambushed. The soldiers fight the bandits, but are overpowered and all are captured, with the exception of Ling and Chenpo, who escape. 
The bandit leader emerges, revealing herself to be the legendary bandit queen. Cue the song, I Take What I Need. Her and her gang intends to ransack the convoy for supplies, but a gang member recognises Mai through her disguise. They've hit pay dirt. The bandit queen hatches a plan to ransom the girl back to the emperor. Shang tries to explain the situation with the Qui-Gong to the bandit queen, but she believes this to be a ruse. Back at the Imperial City, Mulan is leaving for home when a battered Ling and Chienpo arrive. They tell the story of the bandit queen and the ambush to Mulan and the Emperor. The ambush is the second bit of bad news the Emperor has received that day. Thanks to a mole in the Imperial City, criminals have found out about the planned china Qigong alliance and a band of mercenaries is currently making for the bandit trail to intercept the convoy. Mulan tells Ling and Chienpo to ready their horses. The three of them need to get to the convoy before it's too late. Mulan... Mushu, Ling and Shen Po race down the bandit trail and confront the bandit queen, taking out a number of her gang members in the process. The bandit queen is surprised to come face to face with Mulan and says that she is a fan. Mulan inspired her to become the woman that she is today. Mulan says that when she became a soldier, inspiring thieves and criminals wasn't exactly what she had in mind. The bandit queen retorts that Mulan lived a life of privilege and that things don't exactly play out the same way when you're on the wrong side of the tracks. The bandit queen assumes that Mulan is there to free the emperor's daughter and is taken aback to hear that she also intends to take her to Chin's son. Mulan tries to point out the irony in this surprise coming from the bandit queen who intended to ransom her, but their argument is cut short by the sound of pounding horse hooves. The mercenaries are approaching. Mulan and the bandit queen postpone their debate, jumping to their horses and leading the convoy, flanked by Shang, Ling, Shen Po, Yao and the bandit queen's gang. The bandit queen says they need to head to a nearby tunnel. They'll lose most of the mercenaries in the bottleneck and can regroup at her base on the other side. The mercenaries give fierce chase, however, catching up with the convoy and sword fighting with the gang members while shooting arrows towards the wagon containing Mai. The convoy makes it to the bottleneck, with Mushu launching a firework that causes an avalanche, sealing the tunnel entrance and stopping the mercenaries. However, the toll on the convoy is severe. A number of the Bandit Queen's men have been slain, while the wagon is badly damaged. Shang is also critically wounded, having taken an arrow to the chest in the battle. At the Bandit Queen's hideout, there is tension between Mulan and the Bandit Queen. The Queen maintains that Mai is still her prisoner, but Mulan points out that her forces are greatly depleted, and that she, Ling, Chen Po and Yao could overpower them if need be. Besides, as Mulan notes, with the mercenaries now on their trail, they are all in danger, and their best bet is to make for the safety of the Qigong rendezvous if they are all to survive. The Bandit Queen, having now witnessed the ferocity of the mercenaries firsthand, reluctantly agrees. She sets about repairing the wagon with the remainder of her men, while Mulan goes to see Shang, who is being treated by Chen Po, who is now a trained field medic. The bandit queen sets about fixing the wagon. Mai emerges and offers her assistance. The bandit queen is initially dismissive of Mai's help, but is surprised by her strength and resilience. Through the song Always Meeting Expectations, Mai recounts the many hardships that she faces as a princess and the weight of expectation upon her shoulders, which surprises the bandit queen. She then asks Mai why she would agree to marry someone as notoriously vile as Lord Chin's son. She says that she is well aware of Chin's son's reputation, but that she believes this union needs to happen for the greater good. Mulan watches over Shang, who, while in a more stable condition than previously, still needs medical attention soon if he is to survive. Shen Po is a good field doctor, but he's no Han Dynasty equivalent of House MD. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. What? 
Shampoo, played by Hugh Laurie. <laughs> As Shang sleeps, Mulan sings the song What Could Have Been, recounting their failed relationship and how she still cares for Shang, even if not as a partner. Shang awakes and jokes that when he said he'd hoped to see Mulan again under better circumstances, this is definitely not what he had in mind. Mulan wonders whether Shang would be in this state if she hadn't been so stubbornly principled, but he responds that maybe her principles are what the world needs to become a better place. Meanwhile, we see that the mercenaries are rapidly removing the stonewall obstacle that Mushu placed in their path. It will not be long before they reach the convoy. Outside Shang's tent, Mulan talks to the bandit queen. It is a day's hard ride to reach the Qigong rendezvous, and they will need to leave at dawn if they have any hope of beating the mercenaries. The bandit queen tells Mulan about her newfound respect for Mai, that she's stronger than she thought. She also says that her comments about admiring Mulan from earlier were genuine, and that once upon a time, she had wanted to fight for what was right before her life had taken a different path. Mulan tells her that there's still time to change the road she is on. The next morning, the convoy heads off. They're making good time, but just five miles from the Qigong rendezvous, the mercenaries start gaining on them. Mulan shouts for them to press on as quickly as they can, but as Ling, Chenpo and Yao clash swords with the fastest of the mercenaries, it becomes apparent that they will be overrun soon. Even Mushu's trickery isn't enough to keep them at bay. Taking stock of the situation around her, the bandit queen raises a hand signal to her remaining gang members. They halt, turn about face and draw their swords. Mulan shouts back to ask her what she thinks she's doing. Changing the road I'm on. Now get to the rendezvous, the bandit queen responds, before ordering her men to charge into the horde of mercenaries. The bandit queen's diversion is enough to allow Mulan and the convoy to reach the gate of the heavily fortified Qigong rendezvous. As the entrance gate is closed behind them, the mercenaries reach the fortress's outer wall. They try to climb it, but a hail of arrows from Qigong's soldiers seals their fate. Inside the fortress, Shang is treated for his injuries. Mulan and Mai are told that a meeting with Lord Chin to formalise the alliance and the marriage will take place later in the day. Mulan tells Mai that this is not what she wished for, but she is at least happy that everyone is alive. Mai responds that she understands Mulan's mixed emotions. She wouldn't have wished for this union, but is taking comfort in the good that it will do for China. She says that Mulan should too. Mai, escorted by Mulan, enters the meeting with Lord Chin. To Mulan's surprise, a patched-up Shang joins them. Mulan is about to present Mai to Lord Chin, but Shang interjects. He gives a speech saying that arranged marriage might be the traditional way of cementing an alliance, but that doesn't make it right. He says that the Chinese and the Qigong have much to gain from one another in terms of knowledge and experience, and implores Lord Chin to reconsider. The audience is stunned into silence, but Lord Chin hears Shang's words and agrees. The Qigong will support the Chinese for the greater good, and no marriage will take place. The convoy makes its way back to the Imperial City accompanied by a Qui-Gon guard, this time via a safer, more scenic route than the bandit trail. Shang says to Mulan that Chin's decision to forego the arranged marriage marks some kind of progress. Mulan counters that, had she delivered Shang's impassioned speech, she would probably have been executed. Mai then states that slow progress is progress nonetheless. There is a brief silence before Mushu dispels the sombre tone with some signature wisecracking in a reprise of the Woman Warrior song. The group looks forward to their return home. In the final shot, we cut back to the scene of the climactic battle. A battered and bruised, but still alive, bandit queen emerges from the dust. So I come into Year of the Land Shark <laughs> to you guys first. Um, I really, really liked a lot of your your guys' pitch. I love that you delved into the mythology like you did with your Pirates of the Caribbean one. Matt it had that, history. but I feel like it went 
a step further and I really enjoyed that because Chinese mythology is a thing that's not really addressed that much in, not really. in modern times. We see Norse mythology, we see Greek mythology is just milked oh, to the yeah. bejesus and then nice to see like actual references to real mythologies and, and quote-unquote real gods and you're not creating characters just for this so you're actually bringing stuff back from because there are very similar history. themes you see in a lot of western mythology as well like again shape-shifting from you know to human form and such and punishments and so on and so forth and misunderstood beings and great feats and such and yeah it's 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 stuff you can identify with so i thought yeah well we thought we'll include that yeah Matt really, really likes history. Matt also really, really, really likes Chinese history. So it was kind of a match made in heaven. I just sort of said, hey, Matt. He was like, don't worry, I've got loads of Chinese history ideas. Get like, out of here, Tom! Get out of here! I'll, I'll fix this. I was, I was like, painting my face. It was very awkward. Yeah, it was really awkward. Well, speaking of the demons and stuff, I felt like Shang Liu was kind of the weak point in that, where Gong Gong kind of brought a lot to it. I think Jack Black's is an excellent casting for the yeah. kind of comedic, wacky... I'm not such a bad guy kind of character, and I think that works really well. I feel like Shang Li didn't really do anything. She was kind of the sidekick to Gong Gong in a way. In and a she way. She kind of was there it's... just for another kind of demon character. It was like, oh, okay, cool, snake creature, but we've already kind of got a dragon guy, and we've already got Mushu as well is enough kind of true. like... She's quite, she's quite kind of key in his kind of little redemptive arc at the end. That's though. true. Uh, That's she's, true. She's there. Moral compassy kind of thing as yeah. well. I really want an action figure of her, so uh, I like to. Oh, nice. That's that's how you know Disney is on to something. Wait, what? Heads that come out of nowhere on board. Yeah, I think I think I, I, would, I hear what you're saying. Cause it's, ultimately, because she she arrives late in the film, effectively, yeah. that's going to be a big factor into it. And I think it's more about the fact she's we play her quite. Well, it doesn't really come across in the synopsis, but she's playing quite coy and quite very snake-like. But again, the, in the same way that as much. Oh, well, I'm not the exact same personality, obviously, but in the same way that the presence of um, Sir Hiss in Robin Hood, for example, very small character, but very important, very influential. Not overly, you know, as I say, not integral to the plot as such, but a key feature. And I think it's the same thing. It would be a distinctive performance that people would hopefully, yeah, warm to. But I can see what you're saying. And did you bring Phil Collins in so he could fight Peter Frampton in some kind of epic clash of the two teams? I, I would always bet on a drummer and a fist fight. So, yes. No mortal man can harm Frampton. I give you Phil Collins. He would be in he a no he would be in a gorilla suit. He is immortal, but he is no man. Phil Collins just as a, dressed as a gorilla selling dairy milk. It's actually, it's actually Phil Collins in that suit. It has been him all along. That's what we that's what we find out at the end of this film. Is he? Is I assume he has to wear that when he's recording. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how he keeps himself. Feels like journey on. It's, it's it's what he does with his um, Oscar. He has a little gorilla suit as well for the Oscar. Yeah, no, I think also because with Phil Collins, again, with like Tarzan and a few other things, we were trying to, we kept some musical numbers, but we sort of phased it out a bit. Over to Guaylo. I have a couple of questions for you guys. Kind of the, the complexity of the story. I know you mentioned you're pitching it to kind of a more adult audience, bringing on Brad Bird for that kind of reason, because Incredibles is so kind of a, a universal thing that works with adults and children and things like that. What is the kind of how would you pitch that basically because i feel like disney stuff at that point is inherently kind of kid based and is this before or after the incredibles uh this is before depending on when the incredibles comes out in 2004 well unless it's like january the 3rd you're like fuck (laughs) (laughs) the thing is disney's in kind of a rut in 2004 And the market is changing. And as the market is moving towards the PG-13 market, this is potentially 
a jump off point for Disney to do something very different. So you're trying to get in there before the big kind of swell of stuff. Yeah, that, that not necessarily starts with The Incredibles, but that's certainly a key piece yeah, in the kind of I, future kind of Pixar I mean, kind of stuff, isn't it? We've had, really starting with Wreck-It Ralph, we've had, I guess, what we would consider a second Disney renaissance in recent years. I'd say it's Rapunzel, a sort of tangled era. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I thought I thought um, record, right. no, is no, that no. before that? It, okay. Tangles yeah. before. Yeah, it's yeah, Bolt. Then. I was like, Bolt's okay, and then Tangle came out. Like, Jesus Christ, this is good. And right. since then, yeah, Bolt. I've, I've forgotten yeah. Bolt existed actually. Crikey! Yeah. So you've had a Disney Renaissance now, but Disney was really in the shitter. So yes, mid two thousands, and I think just going in an entirely different direction towards a, a different audience and trying something a bit different. I thought shooting for the shooting for the PG, we figured we we could get away with it. And I don't know if we did, but we... <laughs> I thought I thought you were just going. And we actually did. So thanks. Problem solved. Yeah. I really liked how you had like an almost entirely female moment with Mulan, Mai, and the Bandit Queen kind of backing each other up and being like, "Hey, you're all right. You've been through some shit too." And fuck yeah, women stick together and that kind of thing. And that was real. Felt like a real kind of empowering moment for those, particularly the Bandit Queen and Mai moment. And then both having moments with Mulan as well, them kind of bringing the three together. We passed the Bechdel test. Yeah, I, I again, it was just trying to make those characters more complex and interesting, and improving upon the original one because we really we took the original as a as a template. We tried to we tried to go down the mythology route, and we struggled to find a way in with that, um, which you guys did, and then did really well. But we thank you. You guys went full mythology, yeah, pretty we much. Did. Yeah, but we went. Back oh, realism, yeah. We went back and forth with that and then went, well, let's go back to this because we're not getting anywhere with that. And then sort of found our way in there by sort of making Stagecoach. Which is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the whole kind of you don't address it and then, oh, no, wait, Shang's not there and relationships don't necessarily work out and things like that. And then having that kind of platonic respect and and like we we you're still good people which again is a very pg adult thing exactly to do. yeah yeah that that's very much bridging the gap between the like everyone lives happily ever after and nothing ever goes wrong in disney films to then the shit that happens in the 2000s which happens in pixar films people die in the pixar films and it matters and relationships don't work out and there are platonic male and female relationships in disney films now which was basically unheard of throughout the 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s I thought that worked really well. And that was a that was a nice yeah, touch. It, again, I think we when we started it out, they didn't they didn't like each other, mm-hmm. and it was just like as you're writing this, it's like how many more cliches about having a couple who have broken up it, and are that can you can you put into it? Just I think it just became a bit burdensome when you're trying to work with that. It's like this is this is a bit of a ball ache to have to do this, and in terms of then having to resolve that. And then it was just like, this seems a bit more, a bit different, but it also works. If you're trying to make strong female characters, you need to make sure they're not defined by a relationship. Which is exactly what the original sequel... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, fuck arranged marriage, but everyone's defined by their relationships with their male counterparts. It's like, oh, nice try, Mulan. Apart from Bushu, who's trying to destroy them all. (laughs) Fuck yeah. I'm surprised neither of you went for, like, Mushu is evil. He's been evil all the, along. The one thing I did like was the lack of Cricky, or whatever the fuck the thing's name is, because there's a huge... Oh, God. Yeah. yeah, both of us just... Yeah, By yeah. setting it some years later, it's entirely feasible that the cricket is dead <laughs> because he's a fucking insect. 
Well, because I remember when they were making the film, there was the whole idea of like... Um, they must live for a matter of months. At oh, least, right? like that. Fuck it. Fell asleep in Milan's shoe overnight. She put on. Oh, <laughs> shit. Sorry, mate. Oh, oh. you. Yeah. Because they were designing all the characters and this, I can't remember who it was, but someone was so insistent. Like, you have to have this little cricket character. Like, I think there's actually like an official memo that says, nobody gives a goddamn about that cricket. Um, and they keep sliding pages under the door of this <laughs> image of this fucking cricket. cricket yeah, cricket. it's like, what the fuck is this? We've got a horse who looks... You know, again, like, in, like Entangled, the horse doesn't talk or do anything. The horse is just oh, a aware being. And Mushu's your comic little uh, animal thing. It's like, we need another one. It's like, no, we don't. Nobody gives a shit. Like, What's, where's the cricket in all this? Nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> in the bin. I mean, it's a question that I'm often asking when watching films is where's the cricket in all this? So. Yeah. yeah. I think that mostly when I'm watching Citizen Kane. I'm like... Mm, I should be able to talk mm. cricket. I mean, but... Harmy's cricket added editions of the original Star Wars trilogy <laughs> are, <laughs> you know, now the definitive for many people for that reason. Yeah, you some people want this cricket? <laughs> no, I'm good, thanks, Jar Jar. <laughs> Changed the movie for me. Changed Jar Jar for me. Changed everything. Changed my life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, I suppose it's time for me to come to a decision once again. Episode three, so far, the... Plowman Ashen Experience is 2 0 up. Mm. <laughs> that was the perfect response. And moo. <laughs> Just more mooing from you two. <laughs> the mooing street sharks. Yeah. I mean, we're nothing to do with street sharks this season, but sure. Oh, yeah. Your, Sorry. Your team name could have been the Moo Sharks, and that would have been entirely. I don't entirely see why it would need to be. Why that need that to doesn't make any sense. Literal that shark. Seems a bit strange. Seems yeah. <laughs> You're called Year of the Land Shark. That's a literal shark reference. Is it? I don't think a land shark is a shark. <laughs> are you are you saying that you believe that land they've, sharks they've are gone a thing? too deep? <laughs> I think we need to pull land you guys out. Candidate. The rabbit, the, the the shark hole has taken us. <laughs> Blimey. The shark hole. I don't know. The shark hole. So. I am going to go for... It's a tough one, actually. Kind of similar in the Aladdin 2 one, that the first one is so terrible, and two of you guys tried to stick reasonably to the original and fix it, which often happens with us. One of the teams will stick fairly close, the other one goes batshit, and I think going batshit paid off, so I'm going to go with... Heroes and monsters. Uh, I might have uh, had a little weepy if we'd gone three fucking nil <laughs> into this <laughs> second season. Just, uh, yeah, we just fucking out. Like I was, I was, and, it's uh, a, and it's yeah. a clean sweep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the luck of Frampton was with them. But like yeah. again, like as always, I haven't had a single pitch. I don't like. No, like last season there were a few of theirs. I fucking hate now. No, but seriously, like this this season. Yeah, it's been thus far. It's been. Like really, really difficult to criticise. I think we're uh, we're all on our game, and definitely we can we can agree that all of the sequels we're pitching are definitely better. You I could mean, fart in a little You could have an, an, the animation all scrawled on the back of beer uh, mats. I wiped my ass on celluloid, developed it, and it was better than Mulan too. Somehow less offensive. <laughs> Weirdly, yeah. Yeah, so I really like what you guys did with the mythology. I feel like you touched upon it in the Pirates of the Caribbean one, like I said, but you didn't quite go the full way. I really like that you guys went into it, and it's a mythology that isn't touched upon a lot. It's kind of hinted at in the first one, and, you know, there's a whole kind of, oh, yeah, it's just a little bit of Chinese mythology, but you really went balls to the wall with, yeah. with the we mythology. We thought we'd had the license from the ancestors' business and Mushu yeah. being sent in the first place. We thought, fuck it, let's go with this. Note to self, Jack likes full-blown mythology. So there we are. Congratulations, Year of the Land Shark. Thank you. Although you guys are 2-1 up so far. 
So I'll go ahead over to you guys first. Mr. Ashen, how can people find you on the internet? Go to your Google box. Type in A-S-H-E-N-S. That'll do you. <laughs> it certainly will. Speaking of things that'll do you, Alec Plowman. <laughs> oh, I've had some intros in my time, and that is certainly one of them. Alec underscore Plowman on Twitter. That's P-L-O-W-M-A-N. Thank you very much. Fuckers. Yeah, I'm in a band with Jack, Monster City, monstercityband.com. Check out our music. I also write stuff for ultimateguitar.com. So go over there if you want to read things that do not relate to sequels in any way whatsoever. I'm waiting for you to do like a terrible second album because that's kind of a cliche in music isn't it the the terrible second album following the first one yeah there might be a tie-in in there somewhere ah, there you go. watch this space internet tom where can they find you on the internet when i'm not sequelizing i uh, i actually make films and you can find uh, my production company which is called forward at www.weareforward.uk you can also follow us uh, on all of the social medias where we post a lot of behind the scenes pictures and pictures of cameras and all that kind of stuff so if that really floats your boat go check that out and we are on instagram facebook and twitter at made by forward and if you'd also like to follow me i have an instagram account where i post photographs of what i get up to mainly filmmaking and the odd other thing thrown in there for good measure and that's at tom martin underscore 89 mr matt stogden hello how do they find you in real life and the internet. Uh, they find me. They fucking do find me in real life. I'm quite a distinctive-looking individual. You are. People you are. fucking find me, and like, people meet me later. Like, I've seen that guy. I know that guy. He looks like he's from the 17th century. Fancy man indeed. As I'm known in in Alex's household. <laughs> <laughs> Only Alex's house. No, no households around the world. They don't know what it means yet. But like, fancy man, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, but I've got a feeling I know one. If you say it three times in front of a mirror, I slap you one. <laughs> I, I lamp you one in the back of their head and I say, shoot sharks, and they run away. Uh, it's very tiring. Yeah, but if you want to find me other than screaming into a mirror, um, you could. <laughs> you could go to the internet and scream at that by typing in S T O G H Z in capitals. Three times. All lowercase. Preferably three times. Once for Instagram, once for Facebook, once for Twitter. I don't know. Hey, hey. Who knows? Uh, yeah, and you can find my stuff and thoughts and musings and um, other comments on films and the like. Um, if you want to see my long, drawn-out comments on films, you can go to my review site, theredrighthand.co.uk, or you could go to cheeseman.com and see the films that I make and the web series and the like and things and such. So please do that and uh, have a good time while you're there, guys. Have a, have a good time. You can follow me on the internet. I'm at JLW Chambers on basically everything. I host a few other podcasts, mostly about comic books. I like them. They're good. Thank you. And you can follow us. We're at Sequelizers. Sequelizers at gmail.com is the email address to send all your comments and questions to. If you're angry with my decisions, if you want more or less Chinese mythology in your life. (laughs) More Peter Frampton, more Phil Collins, more Randy Newman. This show just gets more and more musical by the moment, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And how musical will it be in our next episode? Incredibly, because the next one is perhaps one of the most famous musicals I think so. ever written. Started off on Broadway, famously. Um, yeah, yeah. Did a really and, good run there for many years. Yeah, yeah, and it translated really well. We're going to be talking about the famous musical Matrix Reloaded. Maybe the most requested film. Yeah. Not a musical, I hasten to add, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Although that would be amazing. Whoa. I thought I was going to have to watch Grease 2 and got worried. it was like the Book of Mormon, but the Matrix, basically. They're just like, yeah, we're going to fix this by turning it I'd into a that. musical. That's, that's definitely not both teams' pictures <laughs> right yeah. there. No, no. So yeah, Matrix Reloaded, one of the most requested of 
all the films ever since we even mentioned the beginnings of this podcast i was like you must do the matrix second and third ones are shit they people did say matrix reloaded and revolution and revolution they were like saying you gotta do both of them and it's kind of up to you where you guys are gonna leave it yeah. and we yeah. we don't know at this point we don't know until yeah, the next we'll, episode. Uh, you have to we'll see. find out how in depth. Hopefully, not leaving it with half a movie, which is effectively what yeah. the Matrix Reloaded. He's is. blind, and there's another movie. Good luck. It'll like, be oh, deep hell. underwater, perhaps. And there could be some sort of machine creatures. Oh fuck <laughs> off! Squids, Robo sharks. Robo sharks. The Sentinels are shark shaped mm-hmm. instead yeah. of squid. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Get hyped, people, because. I think this is going to be a good one. It's, it's one, one be of my personal one. favorites of holy shit, this has ruined the first movie kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally yeah. breaks all the lore of the first one, yeah. and I'm yeah. really looking forward to what you guys can do with it. I'm so, going to break yeah. it so much worse. Yeah. The first thing is uh, Keanu Reeves has been replaced by a different actor in every scene. In fact, Whoa. from every angle and cut, he's so a different like, actor. It's like that yeah. bit in Black Dynamite where it's just a different guy every time. Exactly, Or yeah. Wayne's World 2, where they just get Charlton Heston instead. <laughs> Really? We couldn't get anyone else? We had to stick with Keanu Reeves? We, we did the same Let's thing. We can't recast Keanu Reeves as Alex Winter because we thought, nice. well, Bill and Ted time. Yeah. And the first line in ours is, turns out there wasn't a computer. Ooh. <laughs> Our first line is, whoa, because yeah. <laughs> gotta give the fans what they want. As he stops his horse. Whoa. His <laughs> robo-shark horns. Ah, so... Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.